I got to tell you, I'm really excited about this, uh, this passage. And it's because, you know, 10 years ago, if I had to preach this, this passage, I would have dreaded it. Um, it would not have been exciting to me because I grew up Jehovah's Witness. And as a Jehovah's Witness, you've got to understand that what we're about to read this morning was the most important paragraph in the Bible. This and the parallel passages in Matthew 10 and Mark 6. Because this is why they knock on doors. And this is why they think everybody else in the world that claims to be a Christian is not a Christian because we don't do this. And so I really used to think, eh, I'm not sure what to do with this passage, to be honest with you. Um, because that, you know, it's almost traumatic to think about it. It, it used to be for me that, you know, because I went and knocked on doors every Saturday morning as a child for years and years in my little suit with my little briefcase and my magazines. Hi, how would you like to live forever in a paradise on earth? I can tell you how. So, um, yeah, but I've got to be honest with you. Now, um, having processed all of that and having come back to this passage many times, I've now gotten back into the practice of knocking on people's doors. And I want you to see that this is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus tells his disciples to do something practical. It's the first time in the Gospel that he tells them, I want you to go do this. And as we read Luke, if you sit down and let's say you were to open up the Bible this afternoon, pick up the Gospel of Luke and read it straight through, as you're reading, you'd be eager to know what Jesus wants the disciples to do. What's He going to get them to do? What's He preparing them to do? Because if you think back over where we've been, you go back to Luke chapter 5 when He first starts calling His disciples... He told them that they would be fishing for men, right? Then you get to chapter 6, and he names the twelve by name. Then you get to chapter 7, and Jesus teaches them what it looks like to show compassion on people. And then you get to chapter 8, and Jesus says that you're going to be casting seed. And then he teaches them that they shouldn't be afraid to go anywhere or to do anything for the sake of the gospel. That was really the message of chapter 8. And now, finally, in chapter 9, Jesus now gives his disciples clear instructions. He sends them out on a mission trip, not to the ends of the earth, not yet, but to their own neighbors. And I want us to pay close attention to it. Verse 1. Luke chapter 9, Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. 
The big idea here is clear that Jesus is multiplying himself, right? He's, he's done some things, he's demonstrated some things, and he's brought them along for the ride, and now he's sending them out to do the things that he's demonstrated for them to do. And of course, that's a simple way of thinking about what does it mean to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. We learn from Jesus, and then we go and we share what we have learned with others. And of course, we all have our marching orders as the church from Matthew, where Jesus says at the very end of his ministry, after the resurrection, he looks at his disciples and says, I want you to go and make disciples. I want you to baptize them. I want you to teach them to do all that I have commanded you. So Jesus is multiplying himself, and he continues to multiply himself, which is why Christianity began with basically these 12 men, and now 2,000-something years later has resulted in essentially billions of disciples throughout history. But I want you to look at the specifics. Verse 3, Jesus said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. So he says, get dressed and go with nothing but the clothes on your back. In other words, I want you to go and I want you to trust God to provide for this ministry. Now that feels incredibly radical to us, but that's because our culture is so radically different from first century Judea. This was a hospitality culture, and people were already used to the idea of receiving and caring for rabbis and their disciples. So he's really not asking them to do something crazy. Nevertheless, they are trusting God to provide, and that's, that's an important part of the mission. It still is, uh, even today. Verse 4, and whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. Again, trusting that God would provide through the hospitality of the people that you're trying to reach. <clears throat> Verse 5 says, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Shaking the dust off your feet is like saying, I wash my hands of this. So Jesus is saying, if you get rejected, don't take it personally. They're not really rejecting you, they're rejecting me, and their fate is in God's hands. It's not, it's not your fault. You did what you could do, what I've asked you to do, and if they don't respond, move on. Go to the next town. Go to the next house. Remember from the parable of the sower in chapter 8, God's kingdom is God's work. He uses us to cast seeds, but it is His work to provide or to produce fruit in people's lives. And so do not be discouraged if your efforts don't take root. 
That's, that's God's work. Verse 6. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, that's our text for today, just those six verses. Um, and I, I want to pause here and talk about healing because notice Jesus mentions healing three times. So i got to say something about it. And there's a lot of confusion today in the church about healing ministry because there are, of course, some pastors um, who claim to be performing healing miracles with little or no evidence to show for it. And this is probably a longer conversation. If somebody would like to have it, I'd be happy to talk to you. I just want to say briefly that we're told clearly in Scripture how the church should deal with sickness. In James chapter 5, verse 14, it says, If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So, I want to say clearly, we do have authority as disciples of Jesus to ask God for healing. Absolutely we do. That's clear in Scripture. I pray with people who are sick or who are injured all the time. I ask God for healing. And I believe He has the power, He has the power to do a miracle in someone's life. He might use my prayers to do it. He might not. Sometimes He does. But Jesus doesn't actually heal in the Gospels. When you read through the Gospels, Jesus did not physically heal every person that He met, right? He doesn't do that. John chapter 5, He goes into a place where there are a multitude of sick and invalid people laying there, and He only heals one of them. So it, it, it's up to him. It was up to him even then in Luke chapter 9. It's not magic. It's the grace of God. If you have more questions about that, let's talk about it, because I know this is, for some, maybe really important, so I don't want to dismiss it, but um, I think about it a little bit differently than, than some might. But now what I want us to do is I want us to think carefully about what Jesus teaches His disciples to do in this passage. And you might be tempted to say, well, Mike, I mean, this is the twelve, right? These are the apostles. This is a special project during the earthly ministry of Jesus. He's using the apostles. That's different, right? That's, he's not asking us to do this, but... In the very next chapter, Jesus is going to send out 72 disciples on the same type of mission, and He's going to give them even more detailed instructions, which we're going to look at in a few weeks. And so I believe that clearly Jesus intends for His disciples, the church, to, to be doing something like this. It's just unavoidable. It's there in the Scriptures, them going out, knocking physically on doors, talking and praying with people about the kingdom of God. 
we should also remember that the Gospels are going out of their way to teach us that these men, though they will become important men in the church, there's not anything special about them. These were not professional ministers. They were fishermen. Tax collectors, right? But Jesus told them to do something, and He provided what they needed to do it, and they did it. They went out, and they knocked on their neighbors' doors, and they proclaimed the kingdom of God. And I think it's important also for us to see that the power here is in the message and not in the messenger. There is no way that these men were gifted public speakers, at least not yet. We only have records of two of the apostles even preaching or teaching in, in the New Testament. We don't really know how good they were. But he sends out the twelve, and Jesus did not send out twelve Billy Grahams, right? He's not sending out twelve Charles Spurgeons into the end of the Judean wilderness. You know. The power was in the message, not in the messenger. So, for instance, if a person were to, you know, if somebody that you've never seen before runs into this room right now and says, there's a bomb in this building and everyone needs to get out now. There's not. Okay. But let's say that somebody did that. What are you going to do? You're going to get up and run out of this building as fast as you can. And it does not matter if the person who comes in telling us that is a police officer or a clown. Right? It doesn't really matter what the person looks like that tells you that message. If he says there's a bomb, I'm out. We'll figure it out later, right? Because the message gets people moving regardless of the messenger. And the same thing is true of the gospel. The power is in the message and the Holy Spirit giving life to the message. Paul says we are jars of clay carrying the light of truth. We are not the light. We bear witness to it. And so God was able to take a group of 12 average to below average men and build His church because the power was not in them, it was in the gospel. We go in and with the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean for you? It means that whatever your opinion of yourself may be, in terms of your spiritualness or your giftedness or your ability to speak or whatever that may be, whatever your opinion of yourself, it doesn't really matter God can use anyone for His purposes, and very often He chooses to use the most unqualified, the most unlikely people to do His work. Because He gets all the glory. 
And we've gotten away from this in the church. We hold up the people who are the most gifted and who speak the best. We have. We sit and listen to the professionals. But all of us are disciples. And so, I want you to see how God delights in showing mercy to people who don't deserve it. God majors in producing beautiful, righteous people from the rejects of society. He created the universe out of nothing. And He has not stopped doing things like that. And so you may feel worthless or useless in the kingdom, but God says to you in Christ Jesus that you are His precious son or daughter. And He wants you on His team. And you are actually more useful to God if you feel empty because there's more for Him to fill. People whose hands are full cannot receive grace. And if you're not being changed by His grace, um, then how useful are you, right? If you're doubting this, though, I want you to consider something else. If you're doubting that God can use anyone, I want you to remember the names of the twelve disciples. They're listed again back in Luke chapter 6, if you want to look at them. One of them in particular was named Judas. You know Judas, right? The one who was going to betray Jesus for, for money. Now, at this point, no one knows that Judas is a false brother except Jesus. But what do we learn from this? We learn that Jesus can use, and sometimes does use, unconverted people to accomplish His will. Judas did not obey Jesus and go out on this mission trip with a humble heart, right? We don't really understand or have any idea. The Bible doesn't really explain to us why Judas stuck around at all, but he did. He was not a believer. And yet, he was with these 12 people on mission, and we have no reason to believe that he failed to carry out what God had told him to do. Luke doesn't say, and then they returned, and 11 of them had a good, a good ministry, and one of them not so much, right? That's not what the Scriptures say. Apparently Judas was out there healing people and preaching the kingdom from a heart that didn't even believe it. And y'all, that is both amazing and scary. 
It's amazing because it shows that God can still save people through the ministry of bad men. Paul says the exact same thing explicitly in Corinthians. It really is about the power of the message and not the messenger. So before I should ever think of myself as great or worthy or gifted, I've got to be reminded that there's really nothing special about me. God is the one who has the power to change lives. He says in John 15, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. So it's amazing, but it's also scary. It's scary because this tells me there will be people in and around the church, maybe even their whole lives who appear to be with us and appear to be doing some good things and like they get it, it looks like they get it, but they don't. And so this is really an opportunity for us to search our hearts. I'm not asking genuine believers to start questioning their salvation or anything like that. I'm just asking you, ask yourself, why am I following Jesus? Why am I following Jesus Is it because I love Jesus and I'm grateful for what He's done for me? Or is it because I'm trying to use Him or get something from Him? The last thing I want to say very simply is that I think it's time, I say this in humility, not knowing exactly what it looks like or not giving any specific... I'm not trying to set up a new law here or anything like that. I just want to say very simply that I think it's time for God's church to return to this kind of ministry somehow. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are out there doing it as instruments of Satan because they have the wrong message. They're not sharing the gospel. We have the gospel of the kingdom. And we have clear instructions. And I'm promising you, I'm going to take this more seriously even than I already do as your pastor. I'm going to do more of it because I believe that Jesus can and will use it to change people's lives. Because I want to see God's kingdom come in Horn Lake as it is in heaven. And gone are the days when people are just going to show up at church. Right? Y'all know this, right? People don't just go to church anymore just because they feel like they should be there. We're going to have to go to them. We're going to have to go to them. And you can come with me. I would love for you to come with me. And when I go, I'm not handing out gospel tracts and trying to get into religious debates with people. All I do is knock on their door, stand about 12 feet back so that I don't look like I'm trying to like bust up in their house or something. And I just say, hey, my name is Mike. I pastor that church. I would love to know if maybe I could pray with you somehow. Is there any way that I can encourage you today? And that's pretty much it. And then 
if the Spirit provides an opportunity through conversation for me to encourage them or to share the good news with them or to, for the church to meet some kind of need, then we do, we do our best with that opportunity. And that's it. And I'm trusting God with the results. And if you want to be a part of that, let me know. Let's pray. Father, I just very simply ask that you would bless um, the preaching and reading of your word. And Father, if your spirit is at work in this, if this is something that you're calling our church to be more involved in, and we don't really know what we're doing. There are no experts in this room, um, but your Holy Spirit is the expert, and we pray for your lead. We pray that you would help us to follow Jesus together somehow, to, to look for these opportunities, to trust you with the work, with the fruit. And Father, in just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. I pray that you would bless this table. We thank you for what it represents, the body and blood of Christ Jesus who gave himself for us, that we might be brought near to you by his grace. And it is a means of grace for us, and so we pray that it would be that for us this morning, that we would see it as a way to draw near to you and to one another, to celebrate our union in Christ, our forgiveness, our future. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.